Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. In fifth grade, I played football. Might surprise you to know that I was the fastest kid on the team. In a big game, in a big moment against our fiercest rival, I made a key interception on an errant pass. Now, I don't know if I dove for the ball and caught it or caught it and fell down. Anyway, I was on the ground, I had the ball in my arms, and we either won the game or we didn't lose by as much as usual. So naturally, at the end of the season party, I was in the mix for MVP. Several friends thought that I had a pretty good chance, somewhere between Dark Horse and Coach's Kid, who was the quarterback, or his best friend, who was the running back. Well, as it turns out, I was not the MVP for the Riverside Rams in 1990. That honor went to, oh, well, I don't remember. It doesn't matter now. Anyway, the hope of recognition, though, isn't that unusual on a sports team. In business, in politics, civic institutions, the PTO, etc., etc. People want to know that they are appreciated. They want to know where they are in the pecking order. If you aren't the leader, you at least want to know who is next in line. I mean, you've got plans to make, right? So if you're not going to be promoted or made partner, or something, then it's time probably to move on, right? If you aren't going to be elevated to the honored seat in the synagogue, maybe it's time to start looking for a new rabbi, or maybe it's time to just start out on your own. Indeed, while they were probably considered a bit untoward in Jesus' day, These kinds of debates, the debates the disciples were having about who is the greatest, was probably quite common, even in rabbinic circles, maybe especially in rabbinic circles. Those are very competitive environments. People are always vying to prove they know the scriptures the best. Oh, I know what five rabbis said about this particular passage. Oh yeah, I know what nine said about that particular passage etc. In a rabbinic school, there's no question who the leader is, right? But there also should be no question that students of rabbis were really expected to be ambitious. They didn't make significant sacrifices and choices to end up as an also-ran. They wanted to be significant and noteworthy, To receive the the praise of their rabbi would have meant a lot to them. They wanted to show their parents, hey parent, I I, I made the right choice. Rabbi so-and-so just moved me up. I'm number two now. So to put the best light on Jesus' poor disciples who have been mocked and ridiculed for 2,000 years now, what they were discussing on the way was, well, embarrassing But it's really not that odd. We do the same sorts of things. Uh, We sort of look at it as so embarrassing because of this teaching, in fact. Certainly the passage indicates their ignorance and naivete because, after all, 
they're having this argument after Jesus has said, hey, I'm going to be betrayed by someone who knows me well, like one of you, and killed, and I'm going to rise on the third day. I mean, talk about burying the lead, right? Uh, the, The disciples hear that, and then they go on to argue as to who has the most Uh, credits with Jesus. Jesus, lovingly and patiently as always, steers the disciples away from their embarrassing adventures in pride and towards a radical new way of life, a way of life defined by service to one another. And speaking of embarrassing, he did so in a way that might have actually been quite humiliating for the disciples. He brought a child into the midst of this teaching. And children, remember, uh, while we view them as adorable and we, we, we build entire societies around them in many respects, they were to be seen and not heard. It was one of those kinds of deals. Children were barely above slaves in the household, and You know, if a child had a really bad day and a slave a good one, I can see children being beneath slaves in many a household. An ideal example to lift up then would not have been a child, but, you know, a a wealthy person, a successful person, a philosopher, a military general, or, of course, a great rabbi. And the disciples, they, they would have treated children in the same way that they had been Treated. That's kind of the way things work, right? Dismissively, rudely, and with disdain. We see this in other texts where, where, for example, the Syrophoenician woman, the story we had a while back, the disciples, and I think it's Matthew's account, they're trying to keep her away from Jesus. They're being quite rude to her. So they weren't above being sort of rude to people. It's Jesus who says, no, 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 let the woman come to me, and of course let the little children come to me. But children would not have been an example of anything. They needed to be taught their place. This was not the era of the cultivation of the self-esteem of children. Now, I'm certain that parents loved their children in the same way that parents love their children today, as in they love them more than their own lives. Think of the story of uh, Solomon, right, and the two women fighting over the, the, the baby. The, the woman would gladly give her own child up to, so that it would live. So there's no doubt about that. But they would not have been used as an example. So Jesus is contrasting in a way that would have been a scandal, that is a stumbling block to everyone involved, that those children are to be welcomed as Jesus himself is welcomed. It may have taken 2,000 years for us to spoil our children as much as we have, but there can be no doubt that this moment in Jesus' ministry forever changed the way that Christian parents related to their children. They got quite a, quite a step up in the household and in society. It's another example of how a decidedly Christian teaching would forever influence our culture in ways that we probably just take for granted. And in a very similar way, our notions of service, public service, humble service, is so assumed now among, uh, in a Christian environment 
we forget maybe where exactly, what exactly the text is that inspires that kind of attitude to begin with. Uh, Even our, our politicians in our culture, they know that they're supposed to be civil servants. They they, they know that deep down. They still know they're supposed to say that. Even when, you know, they're not stabbing each other in the back or backtracking or walking back their promises they made on the campaign trail, they know they at least have to pretend to be servant leaders. They might be the most ambitious cad on earth, but they know they at least have to play the humble servant on TV. I don't remember Genghis Khan ever having to do that, or the leaders of the Communist Party, or Hitler, etc. They didn't have to. They were the strong man in charge, and you knew your place. But in America, it doesn't work that way. You see, wherever this ethic that Jesus teaches in this text, wherever Jesus Christ is still around in the ether, in the culture, the explicit teaching of servant leadership is impossible to ignore. The shame of those two disciples arguing about who is the greatest has reverberated down through the centuries, ensuring that no true Christian can or should claim superiority. No true Christian should seek to be thought of as great. So, to recap, I like recaps. The uh, disciples' argument is indeed embarrassing, but not particularly out of the norm. We do it all the time. We should be careful when we do. Jesus choosing a child, really, to set them right as an example of, of, of equivalence. If you receive me, you receive a child in the same way. This would have been a real teaching moment, for it was completely shattering to the social structure Uh, of the day to say that children should be welcomed as Jesus was. And and so then the the teaching, in in a sense, is very simple. The virtue of the day is humility. And yet we should aspire to excellence, shouldn't we? While ambition can be a sin, we should seek to do our very best, shouldn't we? While vanity can be a sin, we shouldn't hide our light under a bushel, should we? Thinking of ourselves as great is wrong. But hey, if we have even one talent, we are not to bury it in the sand. And so this is the delicate walk that we, that we do walk indeed as Christians. We do not think of ourselves as great, and yet... There are all these other teachings of Jesus that say, you have gifts, use them, use them. That is the key to unlocking this door, calling and vocation. We all have calls on our lives. We all have vocations. And in those vocations, we are called to lead. We should be servant leaders in all that we do, but we should lead in any vocation. Do not be afraid to lead in your children's school, in the workplace, in the household, in your community, when you advocate for the health care of a loved one. Lead. 
Do not substitute humility for a rejection of God's call on your life. For the world needs Christian leaders, perhaps now more than ever. Hopefully we lead differently from the way that others lead, but that doesn't mean that we don't lead at all. And Jesus doesn't just tell us what to do, although he would be within his rights to do so. He leads as the greatest servant leader of all. He says how he will lead just before uh, we get to the heart of this, this message. Hear it again. The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again. That is service. That is leadership. And it is for you. And because Jesus has done this for us, we can do it for one another. Listen for the call then to leadership in your own life and pursue it because it is good to lead. Just don't get distracted with visions of your own greatness. That might be embarrassing.